are standing by right now is the one and the only Sean Mooney. Who? Mooney, everybody's got a price for the million dollar man. After you threw him off through the announce table, Taker climbs back down, he gets in the ring, and he goes, see if he's breathing. So right before I called 911, I thought she'd fallen asleep. Kind of shook her a little bit to, to wake her up, and she did not respond. I don't go down to my, go to my grave testifying or whatever, swearing that Davey was not on drugs. If he was on drugs, the way Brett says, how does, I mean, how great does that make Davey? Are you laughing, Sean? I get off the track here all the time. Did you just laugh, Sean? If they would do a movie about your life, who would you want to play your part? (laughs) Uh, Well, George Clooney, of course. (laughs) Who else could it be? Attention, Sean Mooney, you scum, you slime, you maggot. If there's no further questions, you're dismissed. Carry on, maggot. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to Primetime with Sean Mooney. So we got a, a great guest coming up this week. Coming off a great week, a Colt Cabana uh, finally made the lineup here. And uh, you, and I, I'm, you folks, you, you know, you had to wait for it, and it delivered, right? Uh, Colt Cabana, what, what a great guy and a tremendous career. And I love talking to these guys who are just innovators. They really just, you know, they, they are uh, creative. They had to uh, think out of the box to get where they are. And a lot of these guys, that's the way it has to happen. And Colt, uh, you know, did whatever he had to do, you know, to get to where uh, he, he did in his career. But he was also one of the original podcasters. And, uh, you know, that's that was a, a lot of fun talking to him. I'm glad that uh, we got uh, Colt on here, primetime with Sean Mooney. But we've also got another great guest coming up, uh, Sugar Shane, uh, <laughs> Hurricane Shane Helms. And, you know, it's funny, we talked about that. The reason, you know where, why, why Hurricane, why that became his gimmick? Because it rhymed with Shane. And, and, and he said it was, uh, they went uh, Shane Hurricane Helms, or was it Hurricane Shane Helms? I don't know where the rhyming came in there. But, hey, it worked for him. But uh, he's also another great story and another guy that worked his ass off uh, to uh, get where he uh, did with the, uh, you know, the WWE and all the other places that he visited along the way. But also, he was another guy that started doing podcasts before uh, other people were doing. You're going to be hearing a lot more about that coming up. All right. So what do you say we get to Hurricane Helms? Uh, you know, Shane Helms, really, a great guy. And boy, what a great story he has to tell. Let's take a listen. Ding, ding, ding. Hey, everybody. Joining me this week is a man who's had a tremendous career in and out of the ring. Uh, A great run with uh, such WWE mega superstars like The Rock and Stone Cold Steve Austin. And I say run because it isn't just what he did in the ring with them. It's uh, what he did backstage with some uh, tremendous interviews and vignettes. Uh, It's always so entertaining. Uh, He's uh, one of the first wrestlers who ever had a podcast. And you've seen what uh, all this has turned into. And he's uh, currently back with his podcast, Highway to Helms. But, uh, you know, perhaps his greatest achievement ever was being uh, a member of the boy band known around the world, worshipped by women around the globe, when he was with the group Three Count. Uh, You know him best as Sugar Shane, uh, Hurricane Helms, and several other gimmicks along the way. Uh, Welcome, Shane Helms. How are you, man? Hey, man. (laughs) Thanks for having me, man. It's finally, I'm glad we were finally able to get the time together to do this. I feel like we've been talking about it for a couple months now. Oh, yeah, we have. And, uh, you know, I ran into you last WrestleMania, and I was I was out in the crowd at the uh, the live show for Something to Wrestle with uh, Conrad and Bruce. And, and you know, I tell you, it, yeah. Shane, I had watched you do stuff before, you know, of course, with the WWE. But, uh, and I know now you've, you've, you've gotten on stage with the live show, but, man, you were so freaking funny. I, I just said, like, this, he could be, uh, you know, a stand-up comedian, and I know that's been part of your life, but just to see you there live, and I just, I really, really enjoyed that show. Well, I appreciate it, man. You know, uh, that's something I've kind of gotten my whole life, but I think uh, yeah. a lot of people also don't realize how difficult stand-up is. <laughs> so, oh, no uh, kidding. You know, as I a... would have tried had yeah. I not been doing the pro wrestling thing. I would have gave it a shot, but pro wrestling kind of monopolizes, monopolizes the time, but yeah, uh, comedy has been a part of my life. So, 
Well, you know, and uh, and you you just mentioned it. it. It's it's not easy. I mean, they say there's a reason they say dying is easy, comedy is hard because it it really yeah. is. It's tough, right? I mean, and 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 to have to incorporate that into you know the 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 world of professional wrestling is is even harder because it's got you know it's got this whole uh, aura around it that it's this tough sport and intense and all this, and then you have people that can do both. And, uh, you know, I always thought like Santino was, was great there, you know, like few people can really pull it off and, uh, you were doing it before he was. Yeah, it's tough. It's, uh, it's tough to do. Like I've, I've always said this, that the tough wrestling gimmick, the tough guy, that's the yeah. easiest gimmick in the business to go out there and, you know, cut up promos, I'm going to beat you up. And then you do it. It's not, that's not that hard, but like to make people laugh and like, I would have to make people laugh. And then during the heat of the match, I got to make them feel sympathy for me. And then during the comeback, I got to make them believe I can actually, you know, beat this guy's ass. So I would have to take them through the range of emotions. So a character like the Hurricane, while on the surface, it looks easy. It looks like I'm just out there being a goofball, which sometimes I am, no doubt. Uh But it uh, it was way more difficult than people realize. Were you, were you always funny growing up? I mean, was this uh, were you uh, kind of that guy that uh, you know made people laugh as a kid? I, I always tried to be. <laughs> I don't know what my percentage rate is, but I did always give it a go. Yeah, I was a you know a class clown, um, and I think a lot of people too use uh, comedy as a defense mechanism. You know, if, uh, yeah. anxiety issues or anything exert themselves, and but. Uh, yeah, I just always I I really get an enjoyment out of making people laugh and making people happy, and I'll do it at my expense, you know, with no regard either. So uh, yeah, it, yeah, it has been something I've always enjoyed. Well, and and you mentioned you know when you were a kid, and it is like a defense mechanism. And I and I I uh, saw one of the interviews you did, and you said that you were like 140 pounds coming out of high school. I mean, I was a I was a small skinny kid growing up. I was I weighed 89 pounds going into high school, and that was kind of my way of you know, the big tough guys or something, I'd make them laugh or, you know, to do that. Uh, but I know you were always a scrapper. So uh, was it a mix? <laughs> You'd say, okay, if I can't make them laugh, okay, then let's go. <laughs> well, the scrapper thing came out of necessity. <laughs> you know, the, yeah. Uh, yeah. the environments I came out of, like, a, you know, it, it, luckily it's a different time now, but um, it's just kind of, you know, uh, not really – economically uh, a sound home system I came from, <laughs> you yeah. know, so just came up, you know, scrapping a lot. That was just, we didn't have Nintendos and Ataris and, you know, we'd have to, if we wanted to do something fun, we had to beat each other with rocks and stuff like that. So that was just a part of growing up when I, when I came up. But, um, but like I said, I did get a kick out of making people laugh. You know, you do make a lot of friends making people laugh and, it was probably a little bit of that too. You know, I was the middle child, the, the neglected middle child, as, as they call it. My mm-hmm. my family moved around a lot, so I was the perennial new kid in school. So I think a lot of that, you know, I say this now like I'm some kind of therapist or something, but <laughs> I think in retrospect that probably played a part into it. But luckily, I happened to be halfway decent at it, at you know, making people laugh. So uh, it worked out. One thing leads to another, because in the business too, and, and you, I'm sure you've seen this. Uh, the gimmicks that are successful, you know, they tie into that person's personality a little bit. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah. So um, there had to be something in creative when they looked at me and said, okay, we want to dress this guy up like a superhero. <laughs> because that, wasn't necess- that wasn't my idea at all. And, um, and then as the gimmick, you know, then they started letting me be funny with it because I looked at that hurricane thing. I was like, okay, I, this is going to have to be a little unique here. I can't take this too seriously because yeah. I'm dressed in a cape and mask here. And so I started implementing the comedy into it. And at that time, our promos weren't heavily scripted. They would kind of just give us vague ideas. And they would let me really just say what I wanted to most of the time. And that's yeah. when I started getting funnier and funnier. And, you know, they just kind of let me run with it. And that's kind of what made that gimmick work as well, I believe, anyway. Yeah, but were the seeds of this, uh, Shane, planted earlier in – and you mentioned, and you kind of glossed by this, uh, the, the kind of upbringing you had. And and uh, I, I don't know how much time you, you were, it says you were born in Smithfield, North Carolina. I don't know what kind of a, a town that was. Is it, is it a small place? or? Uh, but uh, was that part of it? Uh, you know, like these seeds of 
getting you know the comic book characters was that kind of a, a way of an of escape for you and 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 uh, you know was this something that you think you developed early on? Yeah, I got a I discovered comics when I was like five or six. My um, yeah. I wasn't actually born in Smithfield. I lived there for like twenty years, though, and I don't live there now. I was born in a little town called uh, Monroe, North Carolina, which is just outside of Charlotte. Yeah. And, and it kind of migrated throughout the state throughout the years, but North Carolina has always been my home. Um, but anyway, my uh, my parents went through a divorce when I was five, and uh, you know, I got a new uncle when when the new mom came along, and he had his big <laughs> comic collection. And yeah. So, like I said, I was five to six, and I would go over there, no kids, so it would just be me a lot of the times, and you know, just really started dabbling into this world of comics. You know, wrestling was definitely my first love. I would watch wrestling with my dad all the time. My first memories. A television itself are watching wrestling, you know, not mm. cartoons, not anything. My earliest memories of television are watching old school wrestling. And we're talking about, you know, Southern style. I didn't get to see yeah. WWE, what was F at the time, until I was like in eighth or ninth grade. Uh-huh. But my earliest memories were wrestling. And then this comic thing came along and I just fell in love with that world, you know, just, and it really actually advanced my reading throughout my educational career. Mm-hmm. I started reading at such a young age and, you know, there's still kind of a, it's kind of going away now, but, you know, comics do have a stigma. They're just for like little kids and stuff like that. But there's a lot of complex things that, that go on in comic books, a lot of complex stories. Oh, yeah. And it really, you know, increased my vocabulary from, from a very young age. And have you, were you a collector? I mean, did you become one, uh, you know, along the way? I'm going to amass When your it. fortunes improved? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm, I, I call it an amasser. Like, I don't collect yeah. them for value. I read the books, and they pile up. Right. <laughs> maybe maybe a hoarder is, is, a, is a better term. But, I, you know, <laughs> I take care of them, bags and boards and like that. But I never go out and go, oh, I want this one. And I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to buy it for the value. I, I wanted to yeah. read the books and yeah. stuff like that. But along the way, you know, because I have so many, and I got like a, over 18,000. Um, wow. Know, of course, there's some that have value. Yeah. Some that have some values and some that don't, but to me, they always have, all of them have a value. Yeah, I guess in other parts of the country they call them collectors. Uh, maybe in North Carolina, you're a hoarder, right? <laughs> like the... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the, but it is it's something that uh, you know they brought out in you. But I mean, it was already there. And uh, you know, talking about you, you mentioned professional wrestling, and, and it was something you had to love, but. Were you a good athlete? Because I, I know you got involved in amateur wrestling, but there just wasn't really enough of a program, I guess, where you were to where you could develop. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, I, I was, um, I gotten, we didn't have much of a middle school programs, not many middle school programs in North Carolina. You know, North Carolina yeah. isn't what I would consider a wrestling state. Uh, NC yeah. State now, for sure, is, is becoming a powerhouse. But, you know, we're talking about the, you know, 80s when I was in high school well late yeah. 80s so um but you know I, I did I did great in uh in, in terms of my level uh, I did uh seven years total you know because like, I did all four years of high school and then three years they have these little tournaments you know along the east coast and uh-huh. I mean I guess all over the country but I only traveled on the east coast and you would do Greco-Roman and freestyle so throughout right. the seven years I had won 21 gold medals so I, I was I was really? good but I was good at my level yeah uh-huh. it wasn't that's one of the things, too, when people, if they saw my style as Sugar Shane, and I would do a lot of amateur suplexes in that style, my indie style, and I wore a, a singlet on my indie days that was actually a Kenny Mundy singlet, who was an Olympian, an Olympian freestyle wrestler. So I, I utilized a lot of amateur stuff when I was young, and people ask me all the time, you know, why didn't I do that as the Hurricane, but it, it just didn't fit that character. Uh-huh. Also, we had Kurt Angle on the show. <laughs> Right. Yes, my uh, my little amateur career is pretty impressive until you <laughs> compare it to Kurt Angle. Yeah, did you show him your 21 gold medals? No, I didn't show him any. <laughs> <laughs> I know. He's got that gold one. I just leave him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, well, he's got you, that Olympic said, one, I should say. Yeah, that's right. But um, you, you say that you you never really had any real formal training. I mean, you didn't go to a, a school or, or somebody didn't you know take you under their wing. Uh, so how did you start to even learn what to do in the ring? Um, 
you know, I started studying wrestling, and to, at that time, it wasn't study. It was just watching. But I would, you know, like I say, looking back, I was studying because I would watch mm. you. Know, I would record wrestling, and I would just watch it over and over, and I would watch it with the volumes off. Even, mm -hmm. I mean, I was doing this at a very young age, too. And you watch it with, a, with the volume off, you know, you lose the distraction of the fans, and you start to pay more attention to the mechanics of what the guys are doing in the ring. You start to watch their footwork and you see which, you know, which moves and how they're doing them. And you start to pick up little subtle things. So I started mm -hmm. doing that at a very young age until the VHS tapes would just break as they would do back, uh, <laughs> back in our day. Um, yeah. <laughs> the, you know, so I was, the, I was the VCR. When, I, when I was 13, I got, yeah, VCR. When I got, I got, went to an indie show when I was 13 and hung around to the end and express my interest in, you know, wrestling. And of course, they've heard this a million times. Yeah. But I got in, one of the guys let me get in the ring, and I knew how to lock up right away. Um, There's a lot of things that they were trying to show me and I could do right away. So they were just kind of impressed, and they were asking me how did I learn. I was like, I just learned by watching. And I kind of <laughs> had a gift for that, too. I, yeah. And that gift was also kind of for my amateur career, because my coach would just show me things. And I didn't have to drill as much as some of the other guys would. I would just say, okay, I got it. And I could go and kind of do it. And that translated into my pro career as well, which was a blessing because I started to realize these guys at this little company didn't know what the hell they were doing. You know? right. And within no time, I'm showing them things to correct their technique. And these are the professionals, but it was, you know, it was at an indie level. And back then, indie level was really Bush League. You know, very, yeah. very Bush League. We're talking 1988 at this time was the first time I got in the ring and started working out with anybody. Um, so super Bush League. But um, I just kept studying and, uh, you know, off the Internet, well, not the Internet, through the the Mark Mags, the After Mags. Uh -huh. You know, you had this group of guys that had tapes and I would get uh, VCR tapes from Japan you know, from uh, Europe and Mexico and stuff like that. And it'd be just a collection. And half the time, I wouldn't know who the guys were. And you remember the old tapes after you watch them so many times, it's all grainy and stuff like that. But oh, yeah. Me yeah. and a couple of And then guys you keep, keep reversing them and like going that. back and forth, and you stretch them out, you know. <laughs> it's got this, yeah. especially and the part you like. Slow motion, too, doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, watch them in slow motion, too, messes them up, deteriorates it, or yeah. degrades it. But um, so, you know, and I was learning on the job, learning on the fly. You know, I was helping book talent at 14. At 15, I was a referee. Jeez. And then at yeah. 16, I had my uh, very first match, and that was in 1991. Yeah, you know, uh, but you mentioned that, I mean, you did have that amateur background. And I, I don't know where MMA was at the time. Um, I know it was pretty much back, back street, you know. It was uh, – but – did you think about going that way? I don't know if there was any of that going around because, you know, you, you could mix it up and you like that uh, intensity. Uh, was that ever an option or there just wasn't enough going on where you had an opportunity? Because I think you would have made a, a, a great uh, MMA fighter. No, it, it wasn't like when I started my pro career, it wasn't, it didn't, it wasn't around. And um, by the time my career started, even a couple years in, and yeah. as difficult as it was, because, you know, as you mentioned earlier, I was very small and yeah. there was no cruiserweight division back then. Right. So I kind of had a little bit of MMA because all these big pro wrestlers would try to shoot on me all the time. <laughs> there like... were no little guys and, and they hated and they hated me. So I would yeah. have to, it, it would get live quite yeah. a, quite a bit in my, uh, you know, my first three to four years were very colorful. It was so colorful that to the point when I finally met Matt and Jeff Hardy, I'd yeah. already had this really, you know, roughneck reputation throughout the Indies anyway. And uh, my gimmick name, You're Like This, was Kid Vicious, by the <laughs> way. Which, to me, I was, I was Kid Vicious because I was so skinny, I thought that name was great. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, I wasn't trying to obviously mock the uh, technical savvy of Sid Vicious. Right. <laughs> but, uh, so, I mean, it... it but Magic too soon found out that it was really me just standing up for myself, which is what bullies do. You know, uh, bullies would try to bully you, and then when you fight back, they try to play the victim. Yeah. So I, I had a little bit of bad rep, but it was only because I was fighting back from these big assholes that didn't <laughs> want to work with the little guy. Right. And I'm, well, so well I imagine once they did that but once, no, they didn't do it again. 
No, no, generally they didn't. And then they started to realize that I was going to sell for them way better than the other big guys could. Right. And then yeah. the bookings really started to come in because, like, you know, to me it was always about the entertainment. I, I could do the wrestling. I had did that. And in some of the, you know, live matches I told you, like I just mentioned earlier, when things got live, there was a few times where I would just double armbar these big guys and pin them. Uh-huh. It's like, okay, well, we, you know, and then we get in the back and we fist fight in the back. <laughs> Um, and I'm glad, I'm glad that stuff doesn't exist as much today. You know, yeah. I, it, it kind of bothers me a little bit when I hear some of the old timers and like, man, I wish these guys would have gone through what we went through. Like, I'm super glad that kind of environment isn't around. You know, it's really? so unnecessary. It's just all ego driven, uh-huh. you know, and like I said, just bully tactics anyway. Yeah. But like once these guys figured out, okay. Uh, number one, this kid's going to fight back and this is going to be annoying. And even if, if they beat me up, fine. You don't get like a subway sandwich for beating me up, you know. Yeah. But I'm going to fight you back. Or I can sell for you and make you look better than, than you've ever looked. Right. And uh, eventually guys came around and then uh, the cruiserweight division started gaining a little steam in the mid, mid to late 90s. And uh, everything got a lot easier for me then. Yeah, you know, and it's a, it's a really, you mentioned it, it is a really different world at this this time. And I, I remember, you know, during my time with the WWF that there were some independent organizations out there. But as we went into the 90s and the business started to really dip, and this is when you were really coming in. And, you know, you were, what, an overnight success in 99? So how, how rough was it uh, in those early years, like from 91 until, like I said, you became this uh, overnight success? It, it it was brutal. You know, it was like I say, it was something I didn't talk about a lot for a uh-huh. lot of my career. You know, there's a lot of people that thought my career started in WCW, but uh-huh. I'd done the indies for about eight and a half years at that point. Wow. And you know, and and you know, the T V business, you know, the big companies, NWA and WWF at the time, they uh-huh. weren't doing that great. Right. So if yeah. they're not doing great, you know the indie business is just trash. <laughs> you know, yeah. just a small crowds. Uh, there wasn't as much talent. And um, like I said, because there was no small guys, it would turn into all these shoot fiascos with these guys out there trying to hurt me because I didn't belong in their business, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, it, it, was, it was terrible. There were, there were times when it was terrible. And, but, you know, it was what I wanted to do. And two, the scrappy upbringing that I had just didn't, give me the option of quitting. Like I wasn't going to quit. And if they didn't want me, they didn't want me. I'll go find somebody else to work with and maybe I'll fight them too. I don't know, but hopefully I will win them over. And that was always the hope that I could win them over. And most of the time that did, you know, but there's still a couple, you know, Disco Inferno trainer ran in on me in a match because I was working his brother. (laughs) And he thought my work style because my work style was tight, not, not pain. You know, it just looked good because it was so good. He thought I was shooting on his brother oh. and ran in a match and he punched me right in the side of the head. And uh, this guy was, you know, I mean, I was probably shown 150 pounds, maybe soaking wet. Wow. This dude really? 250. And they just blast me right in the side of the head. Then he yells, now we're getting in the back and now I'm losing my mind because I'm going to try to get him. And uh, <laughs> Disco Inferno was there. We didn't even put this together. Because he never knew I was Kid Vicious. We only pieced this story together like two years ago. He was like, wait, that was you? I was there. I'm like, yeah, that was me. That's crazy. And that was just one, you know. It was, yeah, it was the wild well, west, man. And too, you know, yeah, yeah. That, that whole ribbing, that ribbing yeah. Uh, yeah. atmosphere that yeah. some of the yeah. guys did. A lot of that stuff wasn't ribs. It was just a way for these guys to be cruel, you know. Yeah, I was, you I was just going to say that. Together, okay, yeah. that's a that's a bit of a joke. Yeah. If you go cut my clothes up and put sand in my gas tank, that's not a joke, you know. Yeah. Or like shit in your bag. I would hear yeah. About. yeah, that's yeah, that's crossing yeah. the line. But yeah, you're right, and that was supposedly yeah. you know uh, you know earning your way. Uh, yeah, there was there that was exactly right. You know, that's the difference between someone you know, like you said a rib or something like you know Owen Hart did. You know, Owen Hart stuff he did was funny. You know that, uh, but uh, a lot of guys did back then. That was like you said, it was the old west. And, and you say you know a lot of it there there isn't a place for it today. But what did you get from that though? 
from some nights working in front of 15 people and and working a crowd and uh, and doing these matches and making 20 bucks a night. Uh, what did you get during those years that that uh, helped you later? Twenty? Oh, I must have got a raise. You're talking about year three at least here. About <laughs> twenty bucks. Really? Jeez. Um, it just gives you a better appreciation of things, you know. Um, that is, that is, you know, it's like when you got kids. You know, I got two young boys, uh-huh. and me and me and my wife were all the time talking about, man, they don't know how good they got it. Yeah, and I think almost all parents say that, but it's not the kid's fault. It's no. not their fault that they don't know how good they got it. So it it helps me in terms of when I see young talent today and they don't know how good they got it. It you know it helps me stay in perspective. It's not their fault that they don't know how good they got it. You yeah. know, I didn't have to ride a horse. I've always used cars. You know, so I I try to keep things in perspective like that. It gave me a greater appreciation for what we have today. Help me stay. Help me stay grounded. You know, um, but it taught me how to fight. It taught me how to fight back and not be bullied and, you know, not let people run over me or walk over me. And because I was still, there was no doubt that this is a big man's business. And it still kind of sort of is, you know, mm-hmm. it's not as big as it used to be for sure. But, you know, there's still that magical appeal of King Kong versus Godzilla that, you know, the business likes. Yeah. So, I mean, it just, it helped me survive in that, uh, that environment. Yeah. And in those early years, and we're, and we're talking early nineties folks, um, that when did it though, when it did, it start to get to a point where, uh, you know, you weren't at the level, say WCW at that time, but where you felt things were starting to happen, that you were really becoming a professional at this and a good one. Yeah. Um, probably, um, I started, you know, I kind of had the mechanics, from the beginning, the mechanics were easy for me. Right. You know, the technique of moves and uh, move set, you know, that, that was that was kind of easy for me. And, and I always had this affinity for creating my own stuff. I wanted to create new moves, not just do other people's stuff. And without realizing it, I was looking at it as an art too back then. And I didn't want to do just what other guys were doing. I wanted to try to do something new that they could only see from me because that would make them only want to see me. Or make mm-hmm. you know make people buy tickets to see me. Uh, so the mechanics I was kind of down with, but now I needed to get marketable. I needed to work on my talking, and the only way you can work on talking, as you well know, because you're such a great talker, is to talk. Mm-hmm. You can only do so many promos in your car by yourself. You can only do so yeah. many promos in a mirror talking to yourself. You got to get out there, and you got to experiment, and you're going to bomb. You know, just like comedy, you're going to go out there and you're going to try to cut this. You know, badass promo, and the crowd's going to be just staring at you like, "What?" You know, yeah. don't make no damn sense. You know, yeah. so I uh, had to start working on that. Had to start working on something that you know, a hook that people could get their teeth into. Um, so around ninety five, ninety six, ninety seven, I started putting in the marketing uh, with everything, mm-hmm. uh, trying to make myself marketable instead of just a good wrestler. I wanted people to buy the gimmick, to buy the name. Me and a guy named Mike Maverick. We uh, formed this tag team called the Serial Thrillers, like serial killers, but yeah. thrillers. And <laughs> yeah. Started putting out T-shirts, and it was, uh-huh. uh, you know, it wasn't on the indies. Nobody was doing a lot of that, you know. We, and we had eight by tens. We had watches. We had, you know, like I said, T-shirts and other things. And my partner made absolutely none of that, by the way. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was me the was entire you. time trying to come up with new stuff that people would see and buy. And merch. And uh, and two and two in the big companies, well, not big companies, WCW, the explosion of that cruiserweight division opened a lot of doors mm-hmm. because they started seeing smaller guys on TV. So that opened up a lot of doors on the indies for guys that were my size. So uh, Shane, uh, tell me about the influence that the Hardy Boys had and and the timing of meeting up with those guys. Um, I'd met them at a time. It was actually a, a perfect time uh, to meet these guys because me and my mm-hmm. tag team partner, uh, Mike Maverick, you know, the serial thrillers, we were having a big string of success on the indies and there weren't a lot of other people to challenge us. And mm-hmm. I don't mean storyline challenging us for the tag titles or anything. I'm talking about people to challenge us creatively and athletically. Right. We were right. generally the best thing on the show every single night. Yeah. 
whatever show we went to, and it wasn't close, you know. And so then, you know, then along come this group of guys. I'm talking about Matt Hardy, Jeff Hardy, Shannon Moore, who would, you know, later our team went in WCW. A guy named Champagne, a guy named Joey Abs. He was Venom man, but he would he would grow go on the team with uh or be a part of the Mean Street Posse and oh yeah, WF with Shannon Man. Yeah. And these group of guys are just like all of a sudden, you know, the serial thrillers aren't alone at the top anymore. We got these other guys that are good. And they're mm-hmm. doing new and innovative stuff that it wasn't just that old school southern traditional style. They yeah. wanted to push the envelope, you know, like we like I did. Yeah. And so, um and you can take that either two ways. You can take it as a threat or a challenge. And I took it yeah. as a challenge because I got yeah, you're excited. Like, you're like, give me a piece of that. Yeah. And so we we just hit it off right away. We all and they they felt the same way, you know. Uh-huh. They saw in us, you know, kindred uh, mindsets and yeah. and kindred thought processes on how we viewed the business and where it could go. And just like I say, instant friendship, instant friendship right away. Started hanging out, and you know, we would try to get booked on the same shows if we could. If I had a weekend off, I would go to their shows. If they had a weekend off, they would come to my shows. That sort of thing. We would get mm-hmm. the pay per views together. Um, and it was just that, you know, really good bonding experience. And, you know, then, you know, we had a company called Omega, uh, which was the organization of modern extreme grappling arts. And I think from that one group, I think the total was there were 13 guys from this indie company that got TV contracts. Wow. Whether it was WCW, WWE, yeah. ECW, about 13 guys total. So, huh. which is still something that's that amazing. Yeah. I don't think it's been duplicated. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, did you always so have this vision? I know you kind of talk about it. It's like a ride, but it seemed like you, you were ahead of your time in a sense that, uh, about the merchandise. And then you were always, it wasn't just about what you did in the ring. You're always thinking about, okay, now how, how can I be more entertaining? Uh, did you have the vision? I mean, of always thinking ahead like that? Yeah, but, I mean, I, I think when that happens, it's not like you sit down and you try to think ahead. I, I mm. honestly don't know where a lot of this stuff comes from. It's just I would observe things and then, okay, I see a, uh, I see somebody wearing a wrestling shirt. I say, oh, I mm. want them to wear my shirt. You know, I would just yeah. think like that. And it wasn't, you know, an, a conscious decision to think ahead of the curve. It was just kind of the way my brain works, you know. I mm. actually used to be a really smart kid before I started getting dropped on my head. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> right. Believe it or not, getting dropped on your head, it, yeah. you'll lose the IQ point here and there. Yeah. Here, but here there. I was in my first collegiate program when I was 11 years old, and I got invited wow. to the University of Missouri for a, a program there. So, um, you know, I just had a different way of thinking. And, um, you know, I wanted to be that superstar. I, you know, I, like I said, I loved the wrestling and the entertainment. I wanted to entertain people, and I was just paying attention to what the top guys were doing. Mm-hmm. And not only what they were doing – while they were on top, but what they did to get there. And that's what I think a lot of young guys miss. They start studying a guy once they're on top and they forget to see, to study their path. That's mm-hmm. where you learn. That's where you learn the most. So I, 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 yeah. I, I wish I had a good answer for that because all the moves that I've created, uh, Sean, there's been a thousand times when somebody comes to me and goes, how do you create a move? I go, I don't know. This mm-hmm. idea popped in my head. I was not. I was thinking about a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I don't know what I was thinking about. <laughs> I was thinking about anything other than wrestling, and then uh-huh. out of the blue, this idea is in the back of my head. So it's just something you know, my fascination with wrestling and just the whole industry. I think subconsciously, my brain's always in the background. There's always you know little mice back there trying to put something together. Well, I, I really think that that's a big part of your success too, Shane, because. Uh, you know, how many have you seen along the way where the guy's got the look, he's got the moves, and, and but just a blank canvas when it comes to coming up with ideas? And you mentioned something that, uh, you know, I certainly appreciated tremendously when I worked uh, with the WWF is the, the fact they didn't script these things. And, and uh, you know, I, the greatest material ever that I think to this day was created during that period of time. And I think why, a reason why people look back so, so fondly is that, you know, you had an idea of where you were going, but it was up to you to carry it. And when you know that character, you become that person. It's some, you know, it's a, I'm sure an actor could explain it or, or better or something. But, but that was 
that's what I think it, it just uh, connected so well with people and, and to this day that they still feel that way. Yeah, you know, but there was a lot of safety nets back then, too. Yeah. You know, if a guy went out there and he bombed a promo, well, that TV program was generally shot weeks in advance. So if it sucked, we just didn't air it. Uh-huh. Now everything's live. So yeah. they can't really take the risk of these guys, especially in WWE, of these guys going out there cutting these promos and just stinking up the joint. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So that safety net of the pre-recorded shows, you know, that that, that gives gives you some confidence, you know. Yeah. Because I do believe. But you got to take the you got to take the training wheels off. Yeah, but but you got to take the wheels you off. Do. You know, at times and just go for it. And, and and like you said, maybe they don't have that. Uh, you know that that canvas or that 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 field to go out and just say i'm going to try this and see what happens because you're right they've got that shot one shot they screw up and it could send them back you know send them packing in some cases so it's yeah, it's a different thing world with now. the hurricane and with me becoming the hurricane snowballed off of a a backstage segment that i did with steve austin i was still in the little trunks the sugar shame look but i was hurricane helms and i had very minimal direction on this promo yeah. Um, you know, Vince, and I told this on my live show. I don't know if, if you listen to the podcast or not, because there's a bunch out there. Um, yeah, I just listened to the Manchester episode. I will talk about that later, but uh, yeah. Okay, okay. So that story where Vince was like, "Yeah, you go in and maybe you eat a carrot," yeah. and I'm like, yeah. <laughs> "I didn't have any idea the majority of what I was going to say." And somebody, when I did that show, uh, 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 one of those cool Twitter accounts that puts a lot of the little clips together. They put out yeah. that little, you know, they tweeted out that segment and I retweeted it. And like the confidence now between what I was saying then is just, you know, <laughs> huge. I was like terrified. I, I I remember trying to be confident while I'm in it with Steve Austin, but I'm scared to death. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know I'm talking real low. Like, I don't know. I'm pretty sure I was mic'd up, but you can barely hear me. I just didn't know what I was going to say. But, you know, I think they gave me that opportunity. And then once they figured out, okay, he can do it. Now let him go do his own thing. You know, we don't have that as much anymore. And I think that's kind of what you were alluding to. And that's where you lose the personal artistry that this individual talent might have, whether it's a, you know, guy or girl, whatever, until you give them that chance to show who they are, you know, you're not going to know. That being said, there have been a lot of times too, where you give a, a talent that opportunity and they're not good at it. And then you go, okay, well, we need to script this promo because this person can't do it. And that right. happens. I see that a lot too. Right, but I would you have had it any other way than getting that opportunity with Steve and just uh, and literally cold and just going? No, you know, I mean, I would have loved. I wonder if I could have come up with something better, but it might not have snowballed into this hurricane thing. So yeah. I'm glad it worked out the way it did because, yeah. you know, I mean. It's weird if I would have stuck to that Sugar Shane style. That's the style that's so prevalent in wrestling now mm-hmm. for guys my size. You know, that's yeah. that combination of the Japanese, the European, the luchador style, the American style. That style is what's the most prevalent in the business now. So every now and then I'll have that thought in my head. What if I would have stuck with that? Could I have been that guy that, you know, the AJ Styles and the CM Punk and like that? Because I definitely had the mechanics and the psychology for it. But once that hurricane took over, once that character took over, you know, it just, it, it, literally, it became a hurricane because it took over my life. And, you know, it just went a direction. And that hurricane wasn't going to be your world champion. That character, you don't put the world championship on yeah. the superhero guy. I totally yeah. understand the business behind that. But when I did that heel turn with Gregory Helms, okay, well, then maybe we could have. So mm-hmm. every now and then that idea pop in my head, I wonder what would have happened if I would have stayed that way. But I think I'm a much happier person because I did the hurricane because that made me happy. And like I said earlier, I like making people happy. So it was it was definitely a win win to go that way. Yeah, and it was clear that you had you and you had fun doing it. I mean, and a, and, a, and a great great run with that. And it's it's like I've had conversations, you know, with the uh, bushwhacker Luke and and asked him because you know. Prior to their arrival in the WWF, they were the, the nastiest, you know, uh, stiff oh, yeah. tag team herders. out there. Yeah, as the sheep herders, yeah. right? And I said, well, do you ever, did you yeah. ever think back? He said, you know, 
bloody lovely tell your mother, you know, that uh, it was the greatest thing that ever happened to them because they're still making appearances, you know, uh, yeah. they, because yeah. of it. It's so, yeah, but, uh, you know, as far as the, the success that they had and, and being able to take care of their families and, and, and you know, they enjoyed it. I mean, <laughs> they had, they had a blast yeah. doing it. So I, I, I understand what you're saying though, you know, as, as far as could you have been that, you know, that champion, but, uh, you know, how many other people it would have just died for the opportunity to do that and, and also have the opportunity to be funny. And, and like we said, you know, comedy is so tough and, and people yeah. just, when you, when you're entertaining them like that. So, I mean, I, I, are you happy with <laughs> how it turned out during that one with the WWE? Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. And, yeah. you know, then I have to remind myself of the environment at that time. That was the most stacked roster that oh, has ever right. existed in the history of the business. Because yeah. ECW is gone. WCW is gone. It's all under one roof. And, Sean, you got The Rock. <laughs> like, even when I listen now, the people that were on the roster at the time, you yeah. got The Rock, Steve Austin, Triple H, Jericho, The Undertaker. <laughs> You know, when you got the tag teams of the Hardys, the Dudleys, Edgy Christian, Eddie Guerrero, Chris Benoit, it's like Jesus Christ. Huh. You know, that's what I was up against. That's what, that was my competition. My competition is not who uh, they got me with in the ring. As you well know, the competition is backstage fighting for that camera time, fighting for huh. that TV time. That's my competition. And they had a lot of great wrestlers. But what they didn't have was the hurricane. Yeah. And so... That's well, and I always, why I, I, yeah, I always I liken it I to, I'm so, yeah, but I, I always liken it to, you know, and, you know, you look at the NFL and how many athletes they have on those teams and they're the, they're the greatest in the yeah. world. These are athletes that, you know, but look how many there are now, how many roster spots are there in the WWE? And for you to get, to be on that roster is an, a tremendous accomplishment. And, uh, you know, I think that. Yeah. Some people get to that point and it, and they just don't realize it because that's your that's your environment that's your life that you're competing with sixty or seventy guys you know but at the same time and the rest of the world watches you know these guys that would thousands and thousands of other professional wrestlers out there would love to just get a sniff so it's a different world and there's yeah, no question think, about uh, that I think Edelman is a good example of what we were just talking about because Edelman was a quarterback yeah. And, yeah. he was a cool, and he was a good quarterback. Yeah. But guess what? The Patriots got Tom Brady. So do you want to play in this team or not? <laughs> and <laughs> so we got to find something else for your ass to do. And then, lo and behold, Super Bowl MVP a couple of years down the road. So yeah. I think he's, he's a good little metaphor when it comes to that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and But you mentioned that, though, that uh, at the time, that roster was, was just Unbelievable! It just you talk. You, yeah. I mean, just listening to you name off the talent, and I know there's others we're not mentioning. Uh, to get a, a couple of minutes on television, and everybody competing for that. Uh, how how tough was it in in, in backstage? Uh, and and what was that atmosphere like? Was it fierce, or did uh, you know did people get along? Um, there was a little bit of tension with the WCW guys when we came in because I was a part of the buyout when they bought, yeah. you know, when Vince bought WCW and they bought us in because the WWF guys, and I understand this completely, they won the war. Yeah. So their mindset is we won and now we're going to lose TV time to the guys we beat? Yeah, to these guys? So that's their mindset. Yeah. That's their mindset. We beat these guys while they're coming, won't we, you know? Mm. But Vince had a different vision. Wanting to create his own competition, you know, that sort of thing. Which I'm wow, I'm so grateful for that because <laughs> if it about WCW and this did not hire nobody, we wouldn't be having this conversation we're having right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so it wasn't they didn't welcome us with open arms, but you know, I had friends there, you know, because I had met Jeff there, and I've been backstage s several times at different shows uh, right before I signed with WCW. Um, and when I was doing the Ready to Rumble movie, they, WWF had a show in Anaheim, and I went and visited with some friends. So I had already established some relationships, and a lot of people liked me. Um, yeah. So I didn't have any problem, any beefs with anybody. Also, I wasn't a threat to anybody either at yeah. that particular point in time. Although I was the cruiserweight champion coming in from WCW, 
that I wasn't a threat to any top guy in WWF, you know, <laughs> without a doubt, you know, with <laughs> a top guy. So uh, I wasn't a threat. So that gave me a little bit more security. But um, like yeah, I said, well, they didn't welcome us with open arms. The competition's backstage. That's where the competition's at. Yeah. Well, I know you got kind of a, a leg up on uh, after you'd had that incident with with Bagwell, but um, <laughs> I think I but no, but I think that Vince liked you because you were different. You know, like you you were you, with what you could do in in front of the camera, which was always really really important to him. And uh, I think that that's really what helped you with him. I mean, and and uh, you know, uh, you were also well uh, versed at at uh, backstage politics as well so that that had to be a uh, a minefield to to wade through but it, it's uh it seemed like you kind of fit in right away is that true yeah i, I wasn't great in the politics in terms of i actually wasn't good in, at politics but i didn't create problems that yeah. would need politics to solve yeah. if that makes any sense yeah you know i wasn't a pro- you know i'm i'm a team player i like i said i like the whole process of the show I like the first match, you know, just as much as I like the last match and the middle of the card, or I should say. I like I like all of the stuff. I like all the process. So I didn't create problems, and I never needed politics to solve any of my problems. So, um, you know, I was just a team player, somebody that a lot of guys got along with. And I've said it several times. I'm almost convinced they kept me there so long because I kept the locker room happy. Because mm-hmm. if you hear the locker room laughing, you know, you know I, I think I've always felt happy employees do better work. I could be wrong. I have no data to support that, but that's how I feel. So, you know, even when my time in TNA, if I see some of the guys that were kind of worried about things, I'd go in there and try to ease their mind. And, you know, they would start calling me the Dr. Phil of the locker room. And, and I was happy with that. You know, if I could make guys happy and make them make their jobs easier and stuff like that, you know, uh, I, I would do that. Yeah. Well, then that was to pay. I felt like I should. Yeah. Yeah. You should. They owe you. But uh, but that is an art in itself, being able to, you know, you could get along with anybody. And that's, uh, it, it, you know, knowing how that backstage uh, life is. I mean, it, like I said, it's, you're, you're battling just as much backstage as you are out in the ring. Uh, and to be able to do that, uh, you, you came uh, late to the WCW when things were starting to, to go down. But when you did arrive there um, and, and uh, you got this chance to do with three count, I did want to talk about it because I think that that had to be a blast too, because the the I, I watched some of the the videos that you guys did, and it was you know it's just it to me it was just perfect because it was you know a step off in the dancing, I the key the mute the you know off key in the mute, but you guys believed every second of it, you know, and and uh, I think I've heard you talk that you you in some ways you're a little surprised that it wasn't as well received, but. Uh, I think a lot of people did appreciate it a lot. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't surprised that, that we were booed back then. What I'm surprised yeah. now is how many people still talk about it. And I'm like, yeah. where were you they, guys they then? They love it. <laughs> that's that's, what, that's, <laughs> that's what surprised right. me. You're putting us over. Where were you guys when they were throwing cigarette lighters at my face? You know, <laughs> where were you guys? But we wanted heat. That's what I wanted. If they yeah, were that was it was then, all we about. We wouldn't have been doing it right. Yeah. You know, so... Uh, that too was kind of that wasn't my idea. That's not my style of music. It was, yeah. a, it was the brainchild of Jimmy Hart, who you know I, I owe so much to for you know a lot of things. And it was one of and when people ask me too about the hurricane, I always tie three count into it. So it worked because I believed in it. Mm-hmm. If you don't believe in what you're doing, then the fans never never will. It's yeah. like watching a movie. If you see a bad actor on a movie, it can literally take you out of the scene, take you out of the, you know, the, the movie sometimes if the acting is bad. I think almost every time the acting is bad, you go, oh, that sucks. You know, but if, you can have some good acting in a bad movie, and that can still keep you invested. Yeah. I had to believe, and I knew that. So I went out and bought clothes. I bought most of the clothes. I bought the CD burner. And back then, that CD burner cost me like showing like eleven hundred bucks. This thing. Yeah, that's a lot of money. You know, you get them. What, they're so out of style now; they don't even make them anymore. But you yeah. know, and I made Shannon and Evan a CD. So get the get the dance together, because uh, and as you know, like I said, we if we believe in it, they're going to hate us. 
Yeah. And why do guys hate like boy bands? They hate boy bands because the sister loves them and the girlfriend right. loves them. So we yeah. played off of that. And it, it was a lot of fun, but it's only nine months we did that. I know, yeah. It's amazing. Nine, months that, we were yeah. Well, your timing, I, you know, and, and looking at it, your timing was pretty great as far as uh, how that, that wrapped up. I, I don't know what the atmosphere was like at the time uh, when when people kind of knew this was, this was uh, folding up. But it all turned out pretty well. And, and I know you, you tell the story of how at the end nobody really knew, you know, who the hell was going to buy that company. And if it was going to be McMahon or if it was going to be somebody else. But uh, it turned out pretty well for you. And did you realize uh, when it was over, did you have a chance or you were just thinking, I don't know what the hell I do next? Uh, that last night, my thought was on the final Nitro. And that's when... Yeah. Like, up until that final day, nobody knew. And, I mean, there might be one or two people, but I'm talking about in terms of the locker room, the boys. We yeah. heard all these different stories leading into it. And WCW, to their credit, some of the stuff they were trying, they were telling us was just to keep us, to keep morale up. Like a mm-hmm. coach. You know, sometimes when you're a coach yeah. of a team, you're going to have to tell them some bullshit to get them through the game. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. You know you're not going to win this game, but we got to play the game. We got to get to the end of the fourth quarter. And some of that, some of the things they were telling us were in that vein. Some of it was complete nonsense, sure, but not all of it was from a negative place. Mm-hmm. But, you know, until Shane McMahon walked in that room and it, we had a talent meeting that day and Shane McMahon walked in, that's when we knew, okay, it's on now. So my yeah. whole deal that night was to get out with that Cruiserweight title. Because right. they assured us that the company was going to go on in some capacity. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, well, they got to at least bring the champions in. If I can get out of here with this belt tonight, um, then that would be good. That's and right. So, you know, luckily, that, that match you know, happened with me and Chavo. And Chavo was somebody I worked with a lot at WCW. And you helped me a lot. Still one of my great friends to this day. Um, you know, We went out there and did our thing. And uh, Johnny Ace called me a, a month or so or a couple weeks later. He was, they were going through the contracts when they decided what they were going to do. And. Uh, I was actually the first person they called for whatever reason, you know, just, mm. um, I don't know if it was based on importance or anything like that, but he's like, yeah, I'm making the calls. You're the first one I called and we're picking up your deal. Uh, and you know, you'll restructure it once you talk to Jim Ross and, and everything kind of just went from there. Yeah. So, so did that you, was my did goal you have was a, to get out with that cruiserweight title. Yeah. I hope you took it home with you. <laughs> Make sure that <laughs> they at least have to call to get it back. Right. <laughs> yeah. Did you have any kind of a deal, though, the, a contract? Because a lot of those guys kept getting paid. Did you have anything, any kind of a deal like that? No, I had a very small contract. So I had one of those ones where uh, it wasn't very big. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know how it is in the beginning. You got no negotiating power. I didn't even read my WCW contract. When the FedEx man brought it to my house, I told him, don't leave. I signed it right there, put it back in the package, and gave it to uh, him. Really? You knew you <laughs> no were going. No negotiating power. I right. knew that. Yeah, I knew how it was going to be, go, yeah. and um, but you know, w, WWE they went ahead and took care of me. You know, what wow. I made my first year there was, you know, better than what I was making in WCW. So yeah, it worked out. Talking about the you know Rock and and uh, Stone Cold and what you were able to do with the WWE, and uh, you know my my feeling on it is is that yeah, you can give a guy you know cr- even great creative guidance. But if they don't have it, mm-hmm. if they don't have that charisma, it's not going to happen. And that's why it did happen for you. And that's why it did happen for Rock and Steve. Yeah, for sure. But I agree 100 percent. Yeah. And, and, and that's the thing. And then I so I don't you know, they don't I don't think they have that that freedom to do that anymore. But, you know, it's, it's circumstance, I guess. Like you said, they don't really have the opportunity to do that anymore mm-hmm. uh, or, or maybe that's maybe they need to give that a shot <laughs> because you know you hear that. Do, I think they do a little bit on uh, the live events. Yeah, you know when the guys are cutting promos on live events, there's a little bit more freedom for the guys to go out there and try new things. And then, um, you know, it's it that can sometimes translate to what the guy does on TV in terms of promos in the future. Yeah. But because of the nature of live TV, uh, like I kind of touched on a little bit earlier, you can't really. Um, take the chance sometimes on a, a on a on a talent. It's like okay, I hope this guy can talk. 
Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's just this environment doesn't do that anymore. You know, yeah. uh, back in the day, you know, like I said, they would do the promos weeks in advance for, you know, 18 different towns at a time or whatever. You know, yeah. I forget what y'all call them, but, you know, you bring the guy in and he talk about Chicago and uh, then he turn around and do the same promo about Detroit and stuff like that. You know, they, they, they don't do those things anymore. But in terms of yeah. character, like I said, I feel creative conversation has produced the best results. Nobody can tell me how to be the hurricane but me. Right. Yeah. And you knew and you knew that character. You were you were that character. And and uh, you make a good yeah. point there with the like promos is that, you know, back then you were doing, you know, you'd go to TV tapings, which they did, you know, every few weeks, and you might cut, you know, 20, 30 promos and that experience. And uh, it helped you get to better, you know, I, I remember seeing guys come in that uh, could could barely put a sentence together. It became very good because they just kept mm-hmm. doing it. And and that's part of it. Anyway, uh, one thing I really enjoy, enjoyed seeing, though, and I know you still get in the ring and uh, have had a, a, a great career, but you've also, it, it, obviously, you've got to be challenged creatively all the time. And, uh, you know, you were one of the first, as I mentioned, uh, to do a podcast before everybody was doing it. I, I was interested. I wanted to ask you, like, what even got you thinking about maybe doing something like that? I, I think you were injured or, you know, had some time to kill. I mean, how did, how did that ever start? That first started when I left WWE. And yeah. um, I started getting a lot of different offers uh, to do things. And that, the podcast idea was something... You know, because it was like radio was starting to do really, I mean, not starting to do good. Uh, satellite radio at that point right, time, yeah, too, yeah. Was, was starting to be a bigger thing. Right. And so it's kind of something from satellite radio. How do I do that? But I could do a podcast from home. And right. this, <laughs> this is where the laziness kicked in. <laughs> oh, I could do this from home? Yeah, well. I want to do. <laughs> so it turned into that, but then I, it turned into a video pod. Right. So I would video it. Uh, you know, we put it on DVDs and sell it. Then I started having a studio audience in. It just started growing, growing, growing. And now, well, I'm still wrestling at the time, too, though. So when I get home, I only got a couple of days at home, and I yeah. got to structure this show. And that's where the show, my Highway to Helms now, there's no structure. There's no planning. You know, I'm going to do it tomorrow. I don't have any idea what I'm going to talk about. Uh. So that's the beauty of this show. Yeah. But um, that was just something for me to do. I got, I do have to keep the creative juices flowing. I can't be stagnant. You know, I don't, to me, that's when you start dying. You start, yeah. you start dying when you stop living. I have to keep, I have to be doing some things. My mind has to constantly be going and it drives my woman crazy sometimes. So sometimes she just wants me to sit here and watch TV with her. But I, I sometimes can't just stare at the TV. You know, I need to yeah. read a book and hear the TV in the background. Or I yeah. need to, you know, I'll, I'll be making a meme on social media about something stupid. I don't even know where the idea came from. You know, yeah. I just kind of a little bit of a fidgeter when it comes to that. You know, it, well, it can I mean, be that, annoying. You know, it's, yeah, but it's a, a good lot thing. Of success in my life. Yeah, but it, yeah, but it, it can annoy the hell out of people. Yeah, so I, I mentioned I, I uh, listened to the the Manchester show that, uh, and and I was surprised that 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 was like your first live show that you have done with the podcast or. Yeah, I mean the the ones in ter- in terms of leaving my house yeah. and with a ticket by an audience and going on stage. Yes, like yeah. I did one, and I've done a host of events. You know, like the NWA used to do a fan fest, and right, uh, yeah, they would do a banquet, like a Hall of Fame type thing. And uh, you talking about guys like Bob Cottle Cottle came to me and he's like, "Kid, you're as good as anybody I've ever heard. You need to do have a career doing this." And I'm like, "Oh, okay, okay." So I started keeping that in mind. And then at the uh, WrestleCon event, which is, you know, tied, um, piggybacks off of WrestleMania, they do a, a big WrestleMania brunch every, every year. And I would start hosting that. And mm-hmm. just started getting these gigs just to kind of host things. And they started selecting me because I wouldn't get the list of talent I'm going to talk about until the day of. But because of my love of the business, I knew everybody. Right. And so I could sit there and make a joke about this guy, this guy, that guy, whatever, and try to keep the thing going. So I did things like in front of talking in front of people. Yes. But have I ever been on stage and go, okay, I'm just going to give you Shane Helms. No, that was my very first time. The one that mm-hmm. you heard. And so are we, we going to see more any advice? 
Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 don't know, I know. You, you know, I, you know. Yeah. Well, I tell you, I mean, uh, I, I like the idea, like you said, you don't even plan. And I think that that's a, that's really, you know, a lot of many people could do that. They have to have some structure or something like that, but you, you, you held that crowd. I mean, they were, they were totally into it and you're just freaking funny. You're just, you know, and that's, that's, uh, and that's just a natural, uh, trait you have. And that's, that's going to carry you a long way with it. But, uh, I hope, yeah, you, I think you should do a lot more of these. Look what, you know, Bruce and Conrad are doing. And, yeah, they sit at a table with, and they hold up, uh, you know, cardboard uh, faces, you know, <laughs> like people, you know, Tony's doing them. So, I, yeah, I definitely think, I think that, I, I've told Conrad, I said, you know, what you should do is, uh, you know, have these these piggyback shows. You know, you could have, you know, have Shane open for you, you know, like uh, have him, have his, he could have his show before and then have everybody else come in, you know, like, but uh, no, I, lo- I love it. I hope you. I hope you plan on doing more. Have you? Uh, do you think of the Joker in a different light after hearing that opening? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I'm still trying to figure out. I mean, I like the idea. I mean, the the you know first time soft approach. I you know I think you had a really good point there. So you know, well taken. <laughs> we left what about out being in Phoenix though. He's gonna. He, he's the newest Joker. We left him out of the. Uh, <laughs> The option process. I might have to rethink it. If you want to hear what we're talking about, folks, you're going to have to go listen to the podcast. Listen to the Manchester episode. You're going to love it. But uh, how about being an agent? Now, that's another thing that I uh, – they're different than what I remember as agents. You know, we had uh, Chief Jay Strongbo and uh, Tony Gurria and those guys, and it was basically just keep the rodeo going. Don't let – you know, if get them out of jail if something happens. Make sure that they show up and they're in the ring at the time they're supposed to be there. Uh, what's that, what, what does, what does an agent do now? There's still a little bit of that, you know, a little bit of the babysitting, but not, uh, you don't have uh, to get anybody out of jail anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you know, TMZ covers that part pretty good. Yeah, right. For you, you yeah. get arrested these days. There's no, there's no hiding, hiding it. But, uh, you know, the agent is the kind of the middleman between creative and the boys. Um, you know, trying to, if the, if the talent has any questions, can, can, can I answer it before it becomes an issue, you know, yeah. and just kind of um, make things a little easier off of my expert, you know, not expertise, but my experience is what I meant to say. Um, and, um, but yeah, it has changed since the day. When I got to WWE, we had Black Jack Lanza, you know, and yep. Pat Patterson. And if, yep. they, if they gave you a finish, that's what, that's what it was going to be. That's what was happening. You didn't question right. anything and you really didn't need to, you know, it was, it was fine. We're going to do the job. There seems to be a little, a lot more chatter, these days between talent and creative, like, you know, I don't know if it's the culture, you know, uh, but there's, and I think there's always going to be guys that just complain about everything. And some guys that don't complain about nothing. So you kind of have to balance that a little bit, but the goal is to put out the best product. So Mm -hmm. it's just added another mind, um, to, to the creative process to, to put out the best product that we can. Yeah. And you enjoying it? You enjoy it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I dabbled with, you know, elements of it throughout yeah. my career. If I yeah. wasn't doing anything on this show, I would go find somebody's match to see if I could help them. Yeah. Like, I've always did that, you know. So, um, and I did, I was an agent in TNA for a couple of years when I was out with a, a knee injury. They brought me in and, you know, they they brought me in and <laughs> it was like, okay, we're not going to assign you a match tonight. Just walk around and, you know. They they gave me the card layout and said, just see what match you think you could help with. And I mm-hmm. went right away to the main event. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I, you said I could help. Up, <laughs> ended up giving them the Yeah, yeah. So I, I ended up giving them a finish that they used on their main event that night. And so they offered me a job the very next day. Yeah. And uh, I said no. <laughs> I was yeah. like, I don't know if I like this. I, you know, this might just be uh you know, I need to make sure that this wasn't a one time, one trick pony. You know, make yeah. I need to like the job to be good at it. Uh-huh. And so they brought me in for another another loop of tapings, and then I was like, you know what? I, I actually really like this. I like uh-huh. this almost as much as being in there. You just don't get the adrenaline rush, uh-huh. you know. But I, I like I like seeing my ideas unfold, even if it's somebody else doing the unfolding. So I, I enjoy it a lot, you know. This is a uh, with WWE. You know what's different now though is I got all of these memories in some of these arenas. So when I yeah. get there. It's like, man, I, I, 
I, I think next year, you know, that'll that'll be out of my head. But like, just we were just in the Boston Gardens on Monday, and we were in Hartford, Connecticut, uh, yesterday. And like, I did so many different things in those buildings, and I'm kind of just right. walking around, you know, talking to the ghosts of, of yeah. the hurricane past. Yeah, that's been so. That's been really interesting. But I I really like being an agent. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I tell you, Shane, you you did become a superhero to a lot of people, and so uh, that all came true. Uh, I want to thank you, really, for taking the time. I'm glad we finally got this together. Uh, I hope your schedule is going to allow you to be at StarCast again. Uh, are you going to be able to make it to Vegas for that event? Because uh, I'll be seeing you there. I know you'll be at WrestleMania. Yeah, I'll, I'll be there for StarCast. That's on the books right now unless, you know, something uh, significant happens. But, you know, I accepted that off the strength of uh, the last year's StarCast, which was yeah. a blast. So. Um, yeah. Right now, that's still on, on my books to be a part of. Uh, I, I think the idea is still secretive. Uh, I think Conrad yeah. wants to keep that one close to the vest on what I'll be doing. But um, the idea now is, are you going to be out for Mania doing anything? No, I will be. Actually, I'm going to be in Vegas doing something else. But, uh, yeah, but I will be okay. I will be there for StarCast. So I'll see you there. But um, I, I hope you okay. get an opportunity. I, like I said, I want to give anything away on, on what you're going to do. But I'm just glad you're going to be there. Uh, because you are you, you're you're uh, so freaking entertaining. I'm, I'm telling you, it's uh, it's all you got to do is just be around this guy. <laughs> you're going to be laughing, and uh, so you you've been able to do that in your entire life, Shane. Well, I appreciate you saying that, man. It means a lot. I've right, enjoyed well, I've enjoyed uh, I've enjoyed this conversation. I'm glad we finally got to do it. <laughs>